we started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on we're likely recruiting you to come and join on roll on enthusiasts roll on Welcome to an on-location recording from Hollister Hall at Cornell University. This recording of Public Power Underground is unsponsored and without interruptions or editing. It's an audio only and only available on your podcast app of choice. I'm Paul Dockery, the Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy and Planning at Seattle City Light. Joining me is a familiar and favorite voice on Public Power Underground, Professor Dr. Jacob Mays. Hi, Professor Mays. Hello. Thanks for having me back, and uh, and thanks for making the trip all the way out here. Yeah, you know, it was a it was a good trip. It worth it for the fall colors in Absolutely. Ithaca, New York. Yeah, um, I am traveling out here to go to the Distributed Energy Resources Task Force's Dervos event. Pretty pretty uh, impressive lineup there, including your. Uh, yourself so, yeah yeah uh, it's, like a, it it's like an a good one. it's an impressive lineup uh, in in spite of me i think <laughs> being on the, in the attendee list uh digger shaw is going to be there jesse jenkins leah stokes uh, all the famous names from energy twitter other than you maybe next time uh, we can convince them to recruit you got it yeah um you are going to go present at mit later yeah, this week I'm, yeah i'm headed there tomorrow so uh, so I wouldn't have been able to come to Dervos anyway this time around. But, exactly. Uh, but. We, I thought of this because um, you and I had talked about your presentation at MIT, and I tried to get recruit. I tried to get myself invited to that, <laughs> um, but and that didn't work. But when Dervos came up, and I was going to come across the country anyway, I thought, oh, there's an excuse to come come see Jacob Mays because that would awesome. be fun. Yeah. Well, uh, on today's episode, we'll be discussing in depth a working paper published by Professor Mays on October 10th, 2023, titled Sequential Pricing of Electricity, which investigates the design and analysis of price formation in wholesale electricity markets given variability, uncertainty, non-convexity, and intertemporal operating constraints. We'll review the paper in eight parts, starting with its goal and ending with a policy recommendation and touching on fast start pricing, flexible ramping products, and why price formation policy and parameterization matter along the way. This is what you're presenting on at MIT. Do I have that right? That's right. Yep. So, uh, and I and the also... the paper is only six parts, so we're, we're covering it in eight parts. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah, that's my curiosity that yeah. comes through. So we have to cover the six parts that you wrote. And then gotcha. we have to, like, figure out all the things that I didn't understand in two other parts. Perfect. It's going to be great. Um, and, and I think in your presentation to MIT, I think you told me that you, you aren't done yet. And I'm going to tell on you right now because you still got to work on that. Yeah, well, I'm, I got to I got to clear the elevator pitch with you first, and then uh, then I'll you know write it all up for the, the MIT audience. I, I'm honored. I'm honored. Let's let's get it cleaned up and then publish it for the world to hear. Um, I am going to basically structure this as me quoting parts of the paper. Um, and then we'll dive into the different abstractions along the way. One thing I. I went back and listened to our previous, uh, uh, your previous appearances, and one, two, I have two observations. One, most of what we do on those is like rudimentary market design basics because, uh, like, they're still like my 
I'm getting up to speed. I'm an enthusiast, not an expert on market design. So I was a lot of that's rudimentary. Um, and, and the second thing is I tend to hijack the conversation around my areas of curiosity and don't get enough into like the specific innovative parts of your papers because I don't see them. So I'm hoping you bring your innovation, like the, the, the interesting parts of these papers. Yeah, but, but also what's interesting to an academic audience and what's interesting to the, the people who listen to this podcast, which is a much broader population, is, is different. So I, I don't think you should underrate your curiosity as, as, a, as a good indication of what we ought to be talking about. Right, that's, that's a nice compliment. Thank you. That was very nice. Well, I'm going to start. The first part of this uh, is the goal of the paper. I'm going to quote the goal, uh, which comes from section six. One of the other things I learned about myself is I'm like a performative learner. So I have to start with the showing that I read the whole thing by reading from the end and the conclusion. Um, That way people know that I did read this paper. Uh, Quote from page 40, for reference, the goal of this paper is to promote a shift in the discussion of price formation in wholesale electricity markets from a static to a dynamic modeling framework. While the design and analysis of systems with significant reservoir hydropower have long relied on dynamic models, most other systems have come to rely on simpler static models that have nevertheless been useful in contexts with limited variability, uncertainty, and intertemporal constraints. The entry of large quantities of renewable and battery storage has increased the salience of all these factors, necessitating a richer modeling framework. Uh, to just to start, that was the quoted goal. Anything else you want to say in introducing the paper and, and the topic? Yeah, well, I guess I can elaborate that on that a little bit. The I think you know when when people are doing electricity markets one hundred and one everybody kind of shows a picture of the merit order curve. Yes. And you say, all right, here's your baseload resources and your mid-merit resources and your peaking resources, and you stack them all together, and then you uh, figure out where the supply intersects the demand, and that's your clearing price. And that's kind of, I think, the mental model that that a lot of people have in mind because that's, you know, I I use it in my class. Pretty much everybody who teaches an intro to electricity markets has that kind of slide. Yep. And, and that's the picture in everybody's mind. But I think it, it kind of obscures a lot of the what actually goes on where you say, okay, when you're constructing that curve, <clears throat> how did you figure out which units were online? So how did you commit the resources? How do you have, if you have a ramping constraint, how does that affect the, uh, the, the quantity that's implicitly being offered by a certain resource that has, has been constrained? So it can't actually offer its full... Uh, segment of the curve so to speak yep. uh, because of that ramp constraint uh, where do you put the storage offers in the bids and offers of storage they don't have a you know a built-in opportunity a, a built a built-in marginal cost from the fuel so you have to calculate what's their opportunity cost uh, what does their offer curve look like and where does that fit in the overall uh, overall curve um, so none of that really shows up in the in the static picture yep and um, and it, I think it turns out to be really important for price formation. And the more storage you have, uh, particularly with, with their computation of opportunity costs, the more, uh, the more important it is to have those, uh, those dynamics in there. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the shift in mindset that I'm talking about from, from static to dynamic in this paper. Um, two things. One is I don't know if you meant to troll me, 
but you go from dynamic and static descriptors of this model to deterministic and stochastic. So the D's and the S's, you, they, they got switched around. So I don't know what you were trying to do with that. Yeah, but, fair yeah. enough. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a slight distinction, you know, mathematically, but not... It, uh, the, I'm sure it's right, but it took me my second reading, frankly, to be like, oh, D-L-A-C is the deterministic... Uh-huh. And the S O L A C is the right. stochastic. Okay, so the, just it. for the for the for the people listening along, you can have a deterministic model that's used in the context of a stochastic dynamic program, uh, and, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into into the weeds, or maybe we Please. won't. Yeah, that would actually I would love every minute of getting into right. those weeds. Um, I, I did want to the, one of the other things I wanted to ask about in the intro and in the setup of the paper is. Um, a quote, this paper argues for the centrality of real-time markets, which are cleared sequentially within a single binding interval. Can you talk about like that framework, why it's important to clarify the centrality of that, um, and what this paper is, is doing uh, like specifically because of that framework? Yeah, so I, I think that the uh, if, if you look at particularly in the case of uh, uh, the various proposals that have come up around non-convex price formation. Yes. Fast start pricing, extended LMP, yes. uh, convex hole pricing, etc. Yes, absolutely. The um, dancing wolf calculation. Exactly. Uh, the, the temptation there is to, to show an example, and it's a, it's a single... A uh, single shot example where you have some commitment variable, a startup variable, or a, 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 a minimum run uh, time, or a, a minimum generation level, something like that. That's that's affecting the analysis and making it so that the kind of the plain vanilla LMPs don't work. And that's why we need to have these yep. uh, these these alternate schemes. And I think the the habit with with those types of analyses is really in a single shot. Uh, deterministic model to explain why that doesn't work. And it, it really is insufficient to the problem. Um, so where this shows up a lot is people will model a day-ahead market and say, all right, we have this 24-hour period. We're going uh, to clear 24 hours worth of demand in this day-ahead market. So we solve this unit commitment problem, and then we uh, calculate our prices. And that doesn't really work when you have... Uh, uncertainty in the system because uh, the participants in the day ahead market, including the virtual uh, traders, but then also uh, anybody with opportunity costs is going to be modifying their offers and their bids uh, on account of the potential uncertain realizations in the real time. Okay. So in order to accurately model the day ahead market, you need to have an understanding of what's the the full range of, of stuff that could happen in the real time market. And what's the full range of prices that might uh, might emerge, and then model the way that the expectations for those prices back propagates into the day ahead market and and really any forward market. Um, so when I talk about the centrality of spot prices, this is something that kind of every everybody who studies economics of power markets will agree with in principle, uh, but then. In practice, a lot of people model, model day-ahead markets uh, and kind of skip the step of modeling the actual real, realizations in real time. Um, 
So I, I think this, this, this has implications, especially for the non-convex conversation, but it also shows up with the uh, multi-period uh, ramping uh, constraints and the kind of new ramp products and things like that, uh, where if you analyze them on static problems, you really come to incorrect economic in, uh, implications and understanding. Uh, that's a good segue into the next section I want to talk about, which is um, the, I think the framework to assess the effect of price formation proposals on market outcomes. Um, because I think you're taking, and you just mentioned this uh, criticism, I'll call it a criticism, I think that's fair, of the modeling techniques that focus on the day ahead. Um, and I, you, you have a framework for then evaluating these proposals using an under- vision of the centrality of the spot market prices. So um, in the paper, I'm going to quote you, uh, you say, you describe the paper as developing a framework to assess the effect of price formation proposals on market outcomes, investigating how choices made by wholesale market operators regarding algorithms for commitment dispatch and market clearing can affect incentives for operation investment. Can you I think in the paper you are building out this like three-step um, like framework for coming up with these methodologies for evaluating them, and then you are also comparing different proposals against uh, each other based on this framework. Can you unpack that for me and, and like the approach you're taking in the paper? Yeah. So the <coughs> the um, the well the the title of the paper is. Uh, sequential pricing of electricity and the kind of the, the modeling framework that I'm cribbing a, quite a bit from is is that of sequential decisions under uncertainty or sequential decision making under uncertainty. Okay, and that is an existing kind of area of I don't know. Yeah, so there's a there's a a, a, a big uh, area of so I I my PhD is in operations research, but a lot of people who study uh, controls or um, uh, you know various fields of engineering uh, have the basic problem structure is uh, is sequential decisions under uncertainty. So what that means is you, know, you you're in some state where you face a decision, you make one decision, then you get new information. Yep. Then you make another decision. Then yep. you get new information. You make another decision, etc. Sounds a lot like an electric market to me. Yeah, I mean this this ha- and this happens all over the place, yep. but it, it 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 certainly describes the electricity market where every five minutes, <clears throat> right, we're making a new uh, new decision, um, and then you know uh, like real system operators have multiple layered kind of decisions where they they have unit commitment processes going on, they have economic dispatch processes going on, they have kind of powerful calculations going back. Uh, screening going in the background so there's a complex mix here but the basic structure is you make a decision you get new information you make another decision yep and um and so then the 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 challenge uh uh, or what the paper is trying to do is saying okay if we model that full sequential decision problem rather than just having like a, a single shot day ahead market type of type of thing um what do we need to, to do to specify the whole uh, policy that's okay. being implemented? So every five minutes, we're solving a new economic dispatch problem. Every 15 minutes, we're solving a new unit commitment problem. And 
so uh, in the in the mo- in the in the paper, I just kind of abstracted out. So it's every hour we do something. Uh, we do a full unit commitment over the next uh, forty-eight hour period. This is what yep. I do in the simulations. Um, so then you need to say, okay, how have I modeled that unit commitment problem, and uh, what's my look ahead period? What am I assuming about the, uh, the the past in terms of what's brought me here and what uh, you know warm starts and yep. how, how long it's been since the, I turned off the the generator, etc. Um, uh, so you need to uh, embed that in each hour's decision, and then you need to develop a forecast for you know what's going to happen over my look ahead period. Um, so you do, you you have your forecast for load, your forecast for wind, solar, uh, etc. Um, I'm nodding just for the audience. Yeah, I am yeah, nodding. Yeah, was, I am paying right. attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you need to model that that stochastic process of you know how you how are you uh, in how are you get, getting new information and then developing your new forecast and then how do you translate that into the parameterization of the unit commitment model okay. that you've constructed. Um, so the, the 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 to connect it back to pricing, the issue here is the decisions you make about the formulation of the model. Yes, are going to affect the prices you calculate in the model. Yes. So if you say I'm going to do a unit commitment problem with a two-hour look ahead, yep, versus a four-hour look ahead versus a twenty-four-hour look ahead, those are different models, and so they'll give you a different. Uh, Dual value, which we use as a price, uh, depending on how you've how you've made your uh, your 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 uh, uh, the, that algorithmic decision on how you're solving your sequential decision problem. The same way with the forecasts. If you say I'm going to forecast my demand, and then I'm going to plug in the uh, the expected value of demand, that'll give you one price. Yep. If you if you say instead. I'm I want I'm I'm going to be risk averse, so I'm going to plug in the ninetieth percentile of demand. That'll give you a different dual value. Yep. And so, uh, what the paper is trying to do is is say we want to have kind of a systematic way of, of evaluating. Uh, we we make that choice about the the formulation. We make the choice about the parameterization, and third step, we make a choice about uh, pricing rule. So we might implement fast start pricing or, or convex hole pricing or something like that. But you kind of have to uh, take all three of them together to really have a complete picture of, uh, of, of, the, of the prices that end up emerging from the, uh, from the actual algorithms that are being implemented. So to reiterate, there's these, these three steps for determining and evaluating these, these uh I'll call them policies. What's, there's a better word for it. Use the better word. What's well, it's, it's, I mean, in stochastic optimization world, they're called policies. So you okay. have a policy to, to solve to solve the sequential uh, sequential decision problem. So okay, this is uh, telling us how to go from state we're in to an action. Okay, and there and there's three. You're breaking that down in your paper into the three parts. The first is how you dis- mathematically describe that policy. Is that what you would? There, and then there's the parameterization, which is separate, which is the like the load biasing, uh, in, like that you want to include in it. What's what's it's what, as I was reading through your paper, you're describing these different mathematical models 
for approaching this problem? What's the right term for that? And that's the policy. Um, well, so it, it uh, this is me going down a rabbit hole again. It's, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole. So the, uh, so kind of, if you look at sequential decision, decisions under uncertainty, this, this shows up all over the place. Different fields have come up with different methods of solving the problems that they should that show up in their fields. Um, Kind of the, uh, the the main textbook on this is uh, came out last year by by Warren Powell, and his name for what electric systems use is parametric cost function approximations. Okay. So uh, I I I'm not sure that the name will catch on. Okay. But it's a good one. But, but that's the uh, that's kind of the category um, that we basically operate in and the 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 only important point there is that this is only one way to solve a sequential decision problem so you can you can structure it as a dynamic program or as a reinforcement learning problem or as as a simulation like other other types of ways of solving the underlying sequential decision problem but the way that we go about it in power systems is we formulate a uh, usually a deterministic look ahead unit okay. commitment problem. Okay, and we uh, so we we have a look ahead period that we've decided is you know over the next in the in the in it might just be an intermediate kind of two to four hour unit commitment problem. It might be a day ahead. It might be a seven day ahead or whatever it is. But we have some combination that all basically take the form of a deterministic unit commitment problem with a look ahead period. Okay. So that gets to, I think, your criticism and your the sequential pricing electricity framework here is that we shouldn't be doing that anymore, or we're going to evaluate that method against other methods to see which better approximates the uh, socially optimal commitment. Can you talk about the long yeah. run, yeah. Um, uh, like what you're benchmarking against a little right. bit? Because it is both. Uh, a framework of how to evaluate this problem, but then also how to benchmark what's better. Yeah, so so I think there's a couple uh, there's a couple aspects to that. So so one question that you can ask, and lots of uh, people who are more operationally minded and less market design minded uh, have just asked the question of, uh, okay, how can we improve that policy? Okay. So instead of having a deterministic look ahead unit commitment we could solve a stochastic look-ahead commitment, or we could solve a robust or a distributionally robust or a chance-constrained. Or, uh, there are other things, even other beyond, things this. Okay. beyond this. Okay. So you, could, you, can, you can formulate different policies and say, hey, we have a better way of operating the system because we can apply these, these advanced models to, uh, uh, to the problem. Okay. Um, from, a, from a market design standpoint, the challenge is uh, is more we want to understand the pricing consequences of whichever algorithmic decision we've made. Yep. So, uh, so within deterministic look ahead commitments, you know, we can use different look ahead periods. We can use different forecasting parameterizations, etc. Uh, we can we can use different reserve tuning uh, types of, of levers, but we want to understand how the pricing outcomes compare based on the, the, the formulation we've chosen. Okay. And so that's where, as a benchmark, I use a stochastic program. The reason I use a stochastic program 
is because uh, the, the 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 only really the only theoretical proof in the paper, or the only theory result is if you use prices from a stochastic program, then they uh, support a, an efficient long-term equilibrium. So you have a if you if you're solving a social planning model and you say we want to build a bunch of capacity and then uh, and then operate the system. Uh, over the course of an extended period of time, and we were solving this uh, this cost minimization or, or surplus maximization model uh, for the capacity expansion problem, um, you can uh, you can this kind of stems from the, the theorems of welfare economics. If you set the prices equal to the duals from the, the the idealized stochastic program, the prices are exactly the right amount of money. To support each resource in the in the system at this mythical social ideal. Okay. So that's what makes them valid as a benchmark for if we were trying to get idealized prices out of our spot price formation uh, methods, they ought to look something like this: uh, the stochastic programming ideal. Okay. So uh, for uh, at the risk of sounding. Um, Naive. So, uh, if I were to restate that, so the in order to have this meet this long run equilibrium where we have sufficient resources to meet load and to do it efficiently, so where you get your socially optimum, um, like what what do they call it in the literature, uh, like surplus maximizing, mm-hmm. so that consumers get the maximum surplus of energy consumption and um, and resources get their optimal revenues necessary to meet that socially optimal energy usage. Um, you, you have this long run, like a price formation that matches or meets that long run equilibrium of prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did a proof in the appendix that shows why the stochastic look ahead commitment is the best approximation for the socially optimum uh, long run equilibrium prices. Am I saying that wrong? Is that what the proof did? Is that so the, is that the, the mapping? So, so the the proof applies to uh, to like a fully idealized stochastic program, okay. where you go off infinitely into the future and you know every possible scenario that might might show up. Okay, and, and so it's still abstracted in the okay. sense that nobody can compute. First off, we don't have the knowledge. We don't know. We don't know every scenario that can arise. Second. We can't compute a stochastic program that large if we wanted to. So this is a theoretical construct in okay. the sense that uh, uh, it, it would be implausible to use the perfect stochastic program. Yep. So, so in, the, in the paper, I argue that, all right, well, the best I can do is to approximate that. So I'm, I'm sampling and solving a stochastic program with a smaller number of scenarios and with some simplifications. And, and, uh, and so... Uh, so I think an interesting point from a, a, a kind of an optimization theory standpoint is is the convergence on how many scenarios you need, how high fidelity okay. do you need in order to guarantee that the prices and the simplification that I use really match the idealized ones. Okay. Um, but what I argue in the paper is uh, that's the best I can do, at least yep. for now. So, so we're going to go with that. Yep. Okay. So that is... Um, that's the walking from like the prices that uh, allow for the long run equilibrium to uh, mapping it to something you can op- actually operationalize, which I think is part of the purpose of your paper is trying to articulate that you can use this technique 
uh, under understanding the centrality of like the spot market prices, you could use something like this technique um, to to solve this problem. And it, mm-hmm. in fact, it may be really important to use a technique more like this than the deterministic look ahead unit commitment models um, in areas with a high penetration of right. uh, opportunity right. cost based resources. That's kind of what we're doing here, right? Yeah, and and I and I'll put in a plug for. The work that MISO uh, and and NREL have been doing on a RTO scale implementation of a stochastic look ahead. Oh, um, it doesn't it it doesn't go as many as far out into the future as the one that I programmed, but it's it's uh, uh, it's RTO scale, right? It's it's on the MISO system and it's been validated, so it is possible to solve stochastic programs. Um, with some simplifications uh, at, at grid scale. So uh, Yang Hang Chen and Ben Knuven and, and, and others at, uh, at NRL have, been, have shown that, that this, is a, this, is po- this is something that can be done on, at the grid scale. Um, it, and, and so I, I do kind of want to rewind possibly, but I do think it is helpful to do a little bit of a seesaw on this to kind of come back to the distinction that we started with, which is the difference between a stack a static versus a dynamic modeling framework. Um, you, you started with the picture of the merit curve um, that we've all seen and, and is our proxy for how these things work. Um, can you can you come back to um, the core differentials between a dynamic and a static um, and, and why? Not the why, but more... Uh, one one criticism I have of your paper is you do need more images. Like I do need, you know, that's a theme. That's a theme for my paper. Yeah, <laughs> we you need to find a consultant to help uh, yeah, yeah. get you some some images. But but if it isn't, if the mental model is no longer the ramp, um, w- w- what is it on a dynamic model, or is it just a bunch of ramps? Yeah. Well, uh, is it a tree? Is it a decision tree? Well, you're uh, you're 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 forcing me to to think about a picture here. Um, which I should add to the paper. I agree, but I, I think the the basic difference in in mathematical terms, at least, is if you have a if you have a static merit order curve type picture, and you ask, all right, what's the cost to serve an additional unit of load in this period? The reason I like it is because you just you just go up. Yeah, you just you point. Just, to yeah. the, you point to the marginal cost that of you know where you are, and you say, all right, if I add an additional unit of of Load to serve of demand in this in this period, I can point to exactly uh, how much it will cost me to do so. Yeah, and I can put it on a PowerPoint, and it's really easy. Mm-hmm. And I can be like, "Yeah, that right there." So the the issue with a dynamic model is, uh, so you incur that cost in the present period, but then also you have changed the state of your system slightly. Yep. So there's a value to being in. Uh, any given state in the subsequent period and by altering the state that you're in because you you know your generator is is uh, up by one megawatt or you've discharged one megawatt from a battery or from a reservoir or something um, you're in a different state yep and so the difference in value between the uh, the state that you're going to end up in and the counterfactual state of where you would have been is also going to be reflected in the in the price in the current interval. Okay, and so you end up with uh, a, a different price calculation from the dynamic model than from the static model. 
the most obvious uh, manifestation of this is if you have a battery. Yes. Where it doesn't cost anything to discharge a battery. You know, there may, maybe there's a little degradation, but basically there's no direct cost from discharging from a battery. But you go to the next period and now you have less energy. So that's less valuable. Yep. Like you would rather have more energy in the battery than less in the, in the next period. So there's a cost there in expectation, but there's no direct cost. And so the only way to get a cost coming from the battery is, is with a dynamic model that's going to reflect that, uh, that difference between the, the having the additional charge versus not in the subsequent period. And so if, if we're synthesizing all this down into its most basic kind of conceptual, it is incorporating the impact of my decision now, the, the impact on that for future hours right, into right. the pricing for this hour, right. which is the, a, the different tor- type of calculation methodology between a dynamic and a static. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm going to, I don't know you didn't ask a follow-up, but I'm going to That's gonna even go better. Anyway. If I don't even yeah, have yeah. to ask it, that's even better. So the, the, I think one of the points that I wanna, wanted to make in this paper is that um, it's, e- even though it's a different way of thinking about it, the calculation itself is exactly the same. So uh, you have a deterministic model with a deterministic look ahead or a stochastic look ahead program. Um, either way, you solve that mathematical program, you take the dual value that corresponds to the power balance constraint in your present interval, which is the binding decision that needs to be made and the binding price that needs to be set in the spot market, and that's your price. So the calculation itself is exactly the same. There's no difference uh, there. It's, it's just uh, one of them is able to take into account the battery opportunity cost, et cetera, one of them and the deterministic one isn't. Okay. Okay. And uh, we're going to pivot to the, the specific value or difference this has for regions with high penetration of storage resources. And one of the quotes um, in, in the model is that, or in the paper, if I can find it, dynamic models have long been understood as necessary to the design and analysis of markets and regions with significant reserve hydropower Um, and later on in the uh, discussion of the four models for market clearing the first policy most appropriate for a decentralized market is a single period deterministic economic dispatch in which the effects of intertemporal constraints and opportunity costs are incorporated into the bids and offers of market participants you make the observation that markets with single period auctions with participant submitted opportunity costs, along with multi period stochastic programs, have the strongest connection to the idealized prices that support the efficient system in the long run. I had to run, I had to run through that. Thank you. Um, and, and in the paper, you do note that the Western energy imbalance market and the scene market, the Southeast energy market, are two examples of real time markets which incorporate the bids and offer. Uh, opportunity costs into the bids and offer prices of markets. Um, And you do, in the paper, provide some criticism of why that isn't replicable or why it isn't, um, why you couldn't just do that, where it's just the bids and offers. Can you talk a little bit about that, why it's necessary, um, but then why it may not be 
the best policy? Yeah. So, um, so kind of starting starting from the the the, the beginning there. Uh, kind of like I said, the, the the strongest analog here is markets like New Zealand and Brazil and Norway that really evolved around the hydro resource. Okay. And so, all of the market analysis that came out of there is is focused on all right, how do we assess the value of water in the reservoir and what does that imply about the offer curve for the hydro resource in, in, in any given period. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> what do they... What, do they use a centrally cleared optimal, uh, you know, organized market framework that uses a stochastic look-ahead unit commitment? Or what do they do? Uh, so, so the... Um, uh, so it's it's not a stochastic look ahead commitment, but okay. in so in New Zealand they're relying more on the market participants. So the market participants are constructing their own offer curves and yep. putting them in. And if which you, is what we do in the Western energy yeah, balance market too. Yeah. Yep. Um, in Brazil, uh, it's a little bit different in that the, there's a central planner that's computing the water value and plugging that into the short-term dispatch okay you do so talk about that paper as a in the paper as something that's been researched like what if the what if the op market operator actually controlled the resource instead of a market participant right, yeah, right? yeah and okay. um and uh and, and also you know pjm manages their pump storage facility so instead okay. of instead of having the the um the market participant submit bids and offers for that they've they've PJM just runs it, okay. In my understanding, um, so I think you know, depending on the, the institutional structure and the market power concerns and how linked the reservoirs are, because things can get really messy if you have uh, multiple uh, power plants on the same chain that are affected by the dispatch from higher up the, on the river. Yeah, and welcome so, to the Columbia River power system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and so and so you know, systems that have relied on hydro have kind of developed their own ways of trying to figure out how to manage that problem um but anyway so so kind of porting that <clears throat> that type of lesson to uh to the battery storage uh, world or to the kind of uh debates we're having in a, in a lot of the u.s markets um the uh can we can you dive into a little bit because we've talked about the two different frameworks right one being you just incorporate the market participants bids and offer curves the other being you make you make the uh, uh the resource get controlled by the the market operator i mean the the one where the market operator controls the resource i think the best criticism of that is the market participant could have a different view of opportunity yeah. cost base of uh, the opportunity cost than the market operator which then that puts them in conflict um, anything you want to say more on that phenomenon with the central control of the hydro resource, or is it just that simple? The difference in that yeah, the opportunity I, I mean, cost? I think it's that's the main thing is that uh, the if 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 there's a different view than what then what ends up happening is the market participant is acting suboptimally relative to their own what they see is their own uh, profit maximizing uh, action, and so that's. 
going to create conflict yep. uh, one way or another. And it, so you mentioned New Zealand relies more on the bid offer curves of those participants, which th- allows them to have their own view of the market. Could that work in the U.S.? It, could that so, work in the West? So in, I think in principle it can work, and it's a matter of how much trust you have in that kind of wisdom of the crowd type of uh, type of logic to work. The market power of the yeah. crowd? You mean uh, the wisdom? Yeah, yeah right. Um, and, and I think, the, you know, there is a question, and I, I kind of uh, mentioned this in the paper, but don't go into, into, can't go into great detail on it, is, you know, if you have a whole lot of flexibility in the system and you're pretty confident about the level of competition, so you're not worried about market power uh, so much, then, um, then I think that it shouldn't be too... You should have. You should be less worried about that, okay. and just kind of leaving it to the wisdom of the crowd. Submit up, submit bids, bids and offers. Clear the market and, and, and let the system run. If you have um, lots of concerns about flexibility, where you're really counting on market participants to do things like pre-position their thermal equipment uh, for an evening ramp, even though. There's a reasonable chance that they will lose money doing so. Um, I think there, there, you might justifiably have more concern about that working. And you might say, no, actually, we need a little bit more central control on, on these commitment decisions and the ability to say, right, we, we think we need that, that plant online and, and, and have prices or, or market products that will back that up. Okay. And there's also, I think, what you're saying is, and there's also a third better way, right? There's a third better way to <laughs> well, do this. Yeah. So I think the, then, then the question is, all right, if we're trying to do that, yep. if we're trying to have market products to back up our central decisions, yep. and we're trying to also conform with the, the like what, what the market participants would like to do, because we want them to follow dispatch instructions. We don't want them to uh, adjust their bids because they, uh, are trying to game the system, um, then then the question is: All right, how do we how do we design our set of products and or our dispatch uh, algorithms so that kind of everything is in alignment there? Last thing I I think I should say on this topic is that there's there's one set of questions around the design of the market. So how do you how do you design the auction and how do you form the prices? But then there's a separate set of questions on analyzing the market. Okay. And the, the big issue there is that we don't have the participant opportunity costs. We don't, we don't have the record of what they thought about their bids and offers. And so from an analysis standpoint, you don't have a choice. You have to have some view on how those are formed. And, uh, and so there's a clearer advantage to saying, all right, we're going to go the stochastic programming route from an analysis standpoint, even if we don't think that they're implementing a stochastic program actual uh in actual markets oh so that uh if i like this method the stochastic uh look ahead unit commitment modeling framework is also informative when evaluating even those those market designs that incorporate the the market participant opportunity costs into their bid because it can help evaluate um kind of in like Help help calculate what it would have been, could have been given. 
what right 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 like a so reasonable opportunity you, cost would right, be it'll give you a it'll give you a better picture of what actually would happen in the real world because you're trying to account for the opportunity costs and the participant behavior than if you replicated the deterministic model that's that's actually used okay because it's it's kind of embedding the opportunity cost calculation and the uh, the information being brought in from the market participants. Okay. Before we move on from this section about incorporating uh, storage resources into uh, the modeling framework, I, I just wanted to point out, it is not lost on me that the way you calculated and modeled batteries was for a zero-sum energy uh, resource. It did not incorporate uh, uh, external energy uh, into the storage hydro resource from like side flows or stuff like that. It was like a zero balance on charge, discharge, battery states. Yeah, there's some losses, but I don't have the uncertainty from the uh, inflows. You don't have uncertainty from inflows. Just And you, you, you do mention in your paper, like it's, we don't, uh, the battery, you don't account for degradation of the battery. And side flows are probably similar. It's like, yeah, it's just outside of the scope. But it wasn't lost on me that like, our resources, our storage resources, get refilled exogenously, exogenously, exogenously. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and so that I mean that and that that features heavily in the New Zealand and Brazil and you know the Norway analyses where uh, the the value of the uncertainty is tied into how rainy it's going to be over yep. the near future. Yep. Yeah, it, and it's really important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we may have to take a pause because I'm trying to remember where I wanted to go next. Um, where do you want to go next? My card says evaluating price formation policies. And the question on my card, which uh, I'll be honest, I'm a little lost in my head trying to make it. Uh, I'm still connecting the dots from prior in the conversation. But it says when evaluating price formation policies, the numerical experiments result in prices varying much more widely than costs when costs include energy and reserve paid by buyers of electricity. Can you unpack that some more? And now that I read that question, um, I was like, I think it is interesting that um, when you ran through these numerical experiments, when you um, took these different things, that like the ultimate cost to consumers was the same, but the revenue for generators had some distinctions. Can you unpack that some more? Uh, well, so one, one distinction at the very end there is the cost to consumers changes quite a bit, but the cost to actually run the system doesn't Ooh, change. Good distinction. Much. Unpack that yeah. some more. So, uh, so the, the, the idea there is, Okay, so we have all of these uh, levers that we can pull in, in solving this sequential decision problem. Yep. So, um, so uh, one thing that's being debated in pretty much every market is new reserve products. Yes. So we have new uncertainty. We want to uh, we we want to think about putting in a new reserve product. Yep. And. Uh, if you put a new reserve product in, that changes your formulation and your look-ahead commitment. Uh, it changes the prices that you calculate, uh, so you're changing the, the price for energy, and plus you're also changing the price for the reserve product that you've just invented. So, yep. uh, so the the amount that's paid by consumers is going to change. So the question is, uh, how much are we improving the performance of the system by tweaking our model? with a better forecast or with a a more risk-averse forecast or a new reserve product or uh, whatever it is. Um, And in the the range of of policies that I tested, which is not at all exhaustive, um, they all 
work reasonably well, such that the cost of running the system is within 3% of each other. Okay, so the cost of running the system, how are you, how's that defined? So this is the, uh, basically the cost of all the fuel used uh, and the startup costs and the, and the no-load costs of all the generators, uh, all the thermal generators. If I said production cost, would that production be? Production cost, okay. yeah. And then, uh, and then with a penalty if there's any unserved load. So, okay, oh, okay. Uh, so that's, because that's what, you know, uh, motivates the model to do anything is uh, you need you need to penalize it if it if it uh, if it loses any load. Got it. So the production cost for these different pricing uh, formations is is similar. Yeah. But the prices seen by the generators and I guess paid by the consumers varies widely. Is that the point? Widely. Yeah. So the the revenues uh, can vary quite a bit. Uh, and why is that distinct? I, it's hard. It's it's. I'm having a hard time uh, uh, squaring that circle. Yeah. Well, so I think it, it kind of kind of connects to the idea that we we have marginal pricing. So the uh, the price that's set in any period is the uh, is a marginal price. The price to serve the next unit of load. Um, so if you define a new reserve product that causes you to um, hold more energy or uh, hold more resources in reserve, then that implicitly you're kind of shrinking the supply stack. The marginal resource becomes much more expensive. Okay. And so you can set a much higher price um, in that period because of the, the way you've defined this reserve product. Okay. And that applies to every unit of energy that's being sold, right? So if the, I, I modeled the ERCOT system on a, on a hot summer day, so the entire 70 gigawatts of load or 75 gigawatts of load gets supplied that marginal price. Okay. And <coughs> so even though we're at the very kind of tip of the, of the, the supply stack um, and the bulk of the resources haven't changed their, their costs, um, uh, we're charging a much higher price for the entire 70 gigawatts or whatever it is. And, uh, and so that is charged to consumers. Okay. Um, and then conversely, if you are, uh, if you're, if you're risk averse through your, through the load forecasting, um, so you, uh, commit a bunch of units in anticipation of high load that you've put plugged into your look ahead model, but you don't actually do that through a, uh, a reserve payment. You just commit them through, a uh, through the, the look ahead forecast, and you bias the forecast up to be more conservative, then you might actually reduce the prices because you've committed all these units, they're online now, and then when you get to the real-time uh, hour that you're interested in, uh, the peak uh, hour, you have all these extra uh, units online, so the price is lower. Yep. Um, so uh, uh, so the, 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 so the revenues, the prices that, that show up in just in the range of policies that I tested can range in, in like, a, I think it was in the 80 to 115, uh, uh, 80% to 115% of what I calculated as the benchmark with the stochastic program. Okay. So 80 to 115 is a pretty wide range. This is, you know, uh, at the top end, it's, it's almost 50% more profitable than at the, at the bottom end. Uh, 
And 50% different. more costly too to your consumers. And from the consumer perspective, right, it's 50% more costly. And in this, like the 100% would be like the idealized this surplus maximizing. In a surplus maximizing world, okay. uh, idealized benchmark type of world. Okay. Do you want to go? I was going to keep going a direction, but do you have something else here? Um, well, I think maybe the only the only thing to mention is that it's kind of been widely considered in that in most markets we have suppressed prices, so we're below one hundred percent. We're below that ideal, um, and uh, and so this is part of what's referred to as the missing money problem, where the, the spot prices for energy are not high enough, and uh, and so part of what this is modeling is that. Even though I don't say, I don't kind of uh, directly model exactly what ERCOT does or what any other market does, uh, this is uh, kind of demonstrating in part why that missing money can arise. If you have, uh, if you have uh, algorithmic choices that, are, uh, that end up suppressing the, the, the spot prices relative to this benchmark. And you say this, I wish I could grab the quote real quick, but you say this a couple of times in the model, like the importance of like your algorithmic choices on the realized actual price in actual unit commitment and actual costs that customers served is, uh, is really important. And, and I think part of, to, to reinforce, part of the paper's purpose is to come with a framework so you can measure those things. Mm-hmm. And you actually know like the biasing, what the systemic or structural distinction would be in difference in what you would expect under a re- uh, idealized versus this policy choice, right? Is that right, what right, you're right, trying right, to get right, to? Right, right. Yep. Okay. Uh, I wanted to kind of keep going in a direction because you mentioned things like load biasing and ramping and reserve products and I don't uh, other products that you could do. And, and one of the questions I had um, in trying to like sort out what these different things mean and really their implications on uh, price formation is, is like the distinction between fast start pricing and like flexible ramping products. So um, specifically in the California independent system operator, they have not implemented fast start pricing, um, but they do have a flexible ramping product. And as I've kind of teased it apart, they're doing different things. All of these products probably do different things. Can you help me unpack the difference in what they do and how it matters in price formation? Yeah, so, well, that's kind of really what I'm trying to get at with this paper is is teasing those out because I think there's... So it's um, a pertinent question. It's a very pertinent question. Okay. And I and I and one thing that's kind of bothered me about the debates about, about fast hard pricing in, in outside of CAISO because m- most of the other markets have, have at this point implemented it. Right. Um, and then in addition to that, the... the conversations around reserve product definitions and 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 reforms is that the, uh, they they there really hasn't been a good systematic and kind of theoretically sound basis on which to judge whether these are good decisions or not um and so this is this manifested just just recently where you know the the ERCOT independent market monitor said um is this new ERCOT contingency reserve service that they implemented in, in June. So new, okay. new reserve yep. product. Three months later, the market monitor said, this has raised costs by $8 billion 
over three months. It's a huge impact on prices in uh, in ERCOT if the market monitor is is correct. And um, which we have no reason to believe they aren't. Sure, um, but we have no reason to believe that they use a, a methodology that's going to be right, coherent. Right, okay. and uh, but the. The problem is we also don't really have a reason to think that ERCOT is, is wrong. So, yep. and, there's a, and so you can say, okay, well, maybe it provided $8 billion worth of benefit. We don't know. Okay. Uh, or maybe the ERCOT market monitor is wrong, or maybe ERCOT's wrong. But I think the problem is we, don't, we can't really tell. And it's the, kind of the same story with um, uh, when, when PJM was doing their ORDC uh, reforms, operating reserve demand curve. I was going to ask yeah. it. Good. Um, they were they were they did this a, a couple of years back, and and FERC uh, said um, FERC, FERC gave them the approval in two thousand, I think it was. Um, lone dissenter was uh, Commissioner Glick, okay. then, then Commissioner Glick, and he said this is going to raise prices by 0.5 to two billion dollars with no benefit. And so, okay, well, the question is, uh, well, the other commissioners, I guess, thought there was a benefit, but there's at least uncertainty about what are the benefits coming out, uh, out of it? Was it, it going to increase cost by $0.5 billion? Was it going to increase by $2 billion? We don't know. Yeah, increase just, cost above what and, and benefit against yeah. what? And, What's uh, the counterfactual? And, and, I, th- and I think... Uh, the the, the the counterfactual was just not agreed upon, and the analysis, the style, the method of analysis wasn't agreed upon to the extent that we would like to have when we're making these two billion dollar decisions. Yep. Right. And so, uh, so definitely, the motivation in the paper is to try to say, all right, let's let's try to think about how to do this systematically and, and methodolo- methodologic uh, in a methodologically sound way. Okay. Um, and in and, and doing that, you kind of you do bucket out these different types of way to um, parameterize these uh, unit commitment. I keep on calling models, but there's probably a better word, the, like DLAC, SLAC. Uh, formulations? Formulations. Sure. Formulations. Yeah. Okay, parameterize the formula, formulations. And, and I think for me, after reading the paper three times and trying to kind of clarify um, one of the one of the parameterizations or formulations is on a reserve tuning. Another one is around load biasing. And if I'm thinking about um, the fast start pricing, mm-hmm. that's not either of those, is it? No, and it's not directly in this paper. Uh, okay. so the, I know, and you mentioned that that that's yeah. another area of exploration. Okay. Um, so it's neither of those things. It's a third other thing. So what is Fast, but the flexible ramping product would be a reserve tuning. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So what's help me fast start pricing versus a reserve tuning meth- formulation? Uh, I, well, I think there. I think of them as similar. There's okay. a uh, so the if we think back to kind of like the three step uh, three steps uh, near the top of the, the conversation we had. Uh, one, you're figuring out your formulation. So um, do we have a look ahead period? If so, for how long? Yep. Uh, things like that. Um, the the next is parameterizing that. Yep. And so you can think in, in either of those steps, you can say, as part of the formulation, we want a new product. We want uh, a new reserve product. Or you can say, as part of the parameterization, <coughs> we have this. Uh, we we already have this reserve product. And we're going to procure more of it. 
Okay. Um, or we're going to value it uh, more highly. Yep. Okay. And that's like uh, the adjustments on like what percentile of load. That's a parameterization. But that you have a load bias is a formulation. Um, the well, so no matter what your formulation will include a load forecast. Yep. And so I would say that the load biasing would come in the, with the parameterization. Okay. Good. Good clarification. Uh, so, so what's fast start so pricing? Fast You're avoiding my question. Fast start pricing is in is in the third step okay. of the. Uh, okay. Once we've figured out our formulation and our parameterization, we are going to figure out a way to compute prices. Okay. From, from that model. Okay. And my, uh, you know, beef with the non-convex pricing literature got beef. Is, yeah, right, spicy <laughs> hot take. Is um, you know what, what typically happens is you take the formulation and the parameterization as given. Yep. And then you say, all right, now I'm going to figure out how to compute prices uh, from that model that I've constructed with and without convexities or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. And so. A lot of this comes down to what am I going to do with the startup costs and the and the, and the no load costs and how am I going to manipulate the uh, the, the binary variables, the startup and and uh, runtime variables, uh, so that I can try to incorporate the startup and no load costs in the setting of prices. Okay. And a lot of the fast start debates are debating, you know, what are the rules there? Who's eligible? Or which generators are eligible? And, uh, and how do we go about uh, doing that? Okay. So I think the, the, uh, the, the reason this fits in this context is, is uh, in this conversation as a whole, is there's a few things that have been missing from the, the conversations around fast hard pricing and, and ELMP. Um, extended LMPs. Extended LMPs. That are used in, in MISO. MISO. That's yep. right. Um, the the first is most a lot of the analyses, and this is especially true in the academic literature, will uh, compute prices for an entire look ahead period. So okay. they'll say they'll solve a day ahead market model and, and compute as a, a vector of twenty four prices. Yep. And um, as we've been talking about, that's not how prices are formed. Prices are f- every five minutes you get a new price, and so you can't. Pretend that you have the full 24-hour picture. You have to have a method of, in each individual five-minute period, how am I setting that price? So in order to fully specify what you mean by the pricing policy, you have to have this kind of sequential framework. Um, so that's complaint number one. Okay. Complaint number two is um, most of these price formation policies and the, the analysis of them has been completely detached from the long-run consequences. Okay. So uh, what I mentioned uh, early on about the stochastic program supporting the long-run efficient ideal, um, which is what we're trying to get out of markets, um, if you detach the spot prices from the long-run consequences, then you've kind of missed, uh, to me, one of the major points. Like why The point of having markets to begin with is because we think it'll give us long-run good outcomes for society. And you've and, said this on a prior episode, the markets aren't the... Um, the goal, they're the tool. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, so they're the regulatory tool that we're using to try to get good, uh, good outcomes. And so when, when we, uh, when we're hyper-focused on the short-term markets and we forget the bigger picture, then, then I think that's a mistake. Um, the third aspect, I think, is um, 
I haven't really seen anybody uh, handle the issue of how the fast start pricing and other ex post adjustments to pricing affect the opportunity cost calculations of the market participants. So if we are, um, if we're setting prices in, in kind of like the, the plain vanilla LMP versus fast start versus ELMP, that's a different distribution of prices for market participants. So if you're a battery operator, yep. you will submit different offers based on the price formation scheme. The offers that you submit then get operationalized because you get a different dispatch instruction on the basis of your offers. So you run the system differently. And standard approach and analysis of, of non-convex pricing schemes is to just assume the operations stay the same. And that's not a valid assumption. Okay. But the question is, like, how important is that? And are we going to uh, interfere with the, uh, the ex-ante incentives of, of, of resources that are bidding or uh, making decisions on the basis of these, uh, the, this uh, distribution of outcomes? And one one of the uh, I'll call it an argument in the paper in in advancement of your proposed uh, stochastic look ahead unit commitment framework formulation is is it provides more stability of uh, expected prices at least stability of policy do I have that right um, you mentioned in the paper that the benefit one of the things you want from uh, formulation is that market participants entrance and exits have a uh, kind of stable understanding of how price formations would be would arise and a problem with like reserves tuning which is another method which i think flexible ramping products would be a reserve tuning mm-hmm. um, formulation and parameterization you're relying on uh, policy development to evolve with your resource mix so insofar as you need a new service or a new reserve because your resource mix is changing um, that will change ultimately your prices that are formed and insofar as those policies aren't stable um, it can undermine the new entrants and exits do i have that right yeah so maybe to contextualize this a little bit more we, we have this decision on all right how are we going to operate the system under uncertainty and how are we going to compensate resources for the uh, flexibility that they're providing yep. by responding to uncertainty? And if you if you compute prices out of a stochastic program, um, or if if you believe in the opportunity cost calculations that market participants are giving you, and you just just go with them, um, then you get. These this kind of idealized picture that's kind of closer to the uh, the, the benchmark that, uh, yep. that I calculated. Yep, uh, that was one of the conclusions. Just to underscore that, you did mention that in the paper that those are the two that yeah. get closest. Yeah, those to are the two that get closest. Metric. But but you can, in principle, say, hey, you know what? We've always used reserve products. We yep. kind of know how those work. We have interest in developing new ones. It gives us more control. Uh, so we. Uh, we don't like that. We don't like the stochastic program. We don't like the opportunity costs. We're going to define ramping products and and uh, uh, different reserve products and stuff and and do a little bit more of a uh, a centralized approach. So I think that's perfectly plausible, um, and I kind of buy the the the, the desire yep. for for that on, on the part of grid operators. I think that the um, the potential risks. Um, one is 
that the uh, the need to change the reserve product definitions uh, from an operational standpoint will always outpace the regulatory process that's yep. able to support it. So if we say, um, you know, we've added 30 gigawatts of wind, we've decided we need a new product, uh, we're going to figure out a new way to, to determine quantities for that product. Um, now we have a five to 10 year stakeholder process. It's always going to be lagging. It's always going to be always going to be lagging. Yep. And so one concern is the, is and that lagging is going to impact. It's going to cost more for consumers or at least de-optimize yeah. your solution. Oh, yeah. and so then, it's not going to be as long run. The great operator is going to have to override because they have, they see the reliability need, yep. but they don't have the service in place. And so they, yep. uh, so it, it, it doesn't. So I, I worry about that in terms of the sustainability and uh, not to cut you off, but one of the things like, I think this, what this framework does is it does, it does calculate your counterfactual pretty well, right? It mm-hmm. is at least a way, and you were talking about uh, like FERC approving fast start pricings, or I forget what it was you were mentioning specifically, but talking about what is that counterfactual with the benefit or the cost to consumers, at least this provides a framework so that we can have some rational discussion about mm-hmm. whether continuing to implement reserves, mm-hmm. uh, Right. Is costing how much it's costing us? Right. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So then, the I think the other note on stability is is if you're relying on market investment in um, in new resources, and you think the reserve market design is going to play an important role in in uh, how prices evolve on the system, that creates a, a, a potentially large amount of policy risk. Okay. Where yes, um, I'm you know I'm going to put in a new battery. And I am trying to figure out what which reserve products I'm going to be able to sell for how much, which uh, how much I'm going to be able to get out of energy arbitrage, et cetera. And all of a sudden, instead of just kind of like a, a an idealized, uh, or I'm just, just instead of doing my own analysis on where I think prices are going, I have this additional layer of uncertainty on. And, you know, what's going to come out of the stakeholder process in terms of the new reserve product and how's that going to affect my, uh, uh, my valuation? And, um, uh, and so I worry about that kind of contracting and, and, and investment piece out of uh, if we're relying on, on reserve markets. Yep. Just to rewind, because this all came from a question about the difference between fast start pricing and flexible ramping products. And if I understand it right, the... The fast start pricing is just in some ways different in kind than the reserve tuning and um, load biasing uh, poly- uh, formulation and parameterization in a deterministic model. Um, it is kind of, uh, it's a third different thing. But if you, flexible ramping products, are they, there are other things that um, I similarly, like, want to understand one is like ordcs is a flexible ramping product just a different sort of operational op- what's an ordc again? an operating reserve demand curve yeah so with an with an operating reserve demand curve uh, all that's saying is we have a certain willingness to pay for reserves on the system yep and um so we're going to penalize a shortfall in any reserve product uh depending on uh at the value of this curve. Okay. And uh, so the... But does that get incorporated into the actual spot price formulation? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. And same thing with the flexible ramping product. Yep. 
um, a uh, uh, ruck reliability unit commitment that does not. It does it, not. It ends up <laughs> deflating your spot price. Potentially deflates the because you're recovering price. that yeah. revenue from market participants separate from the spot price. So that's as I'm like thinking through the distinctions here. As I like when somebody comes up with another word, what's my first question going to be? Um, so when it's like ruck, ORDC, flexible ramping product, those are I categorize those as two different things. ORDCs and flexible ramping products end up resolving to the spot price. The ruck doesn't. Uh, right. Yeah. And then what Texas did, Texas did a uh, some sort of product. The ERCOT Contingency Reserve Service. ERCOT Contingency yeah. Reserve Service. Is that like the RUC or is that like the ORDC? It's it's closer to the uh, ORDC or closer also to, uh, uh, to kind of a generic reserve product, ramping product. Uh, there, I would say in general one of the – one of the issues here is that reserve products uh, are especially, so uh, more specifically, active power beyond the five-minute period. So anything that's spinning reserves. uh, And by beyond, you mean smaller timescales. Anything that's going to be deployed on timescales longer than the economic dispatch, which is a five-minute Longer than. Yeah. Okay. Um, they all kind of do the same thing. Okay. And so there's a, it's, it's somewhat amorphous in, in figuring out what's the difference between a ramping product versus a reserve product versus a contingency reserve versus, uh, you know, a, a contingency reserve that's not for traditional contingencies, but it's said it is for a big uh, forecast misses or things like that. They all kind of do the same thing. Okay. And um, so it's, there's a lot of, I think, confusion stemming from the fact that everybody calls them something different and, and specifies it slightly different, but they're all basically the same thing. Yeah. Which is what I'm trying to like help is like bucket into them, these two different categories. Cause like a load bias, load biasing doesn't end up in the spot market. Right, right, right. And that's like the ruck also doesn't end up in the spot market uh, resolution. So, and, and then there are reserve tunings, which do. So in the paper, when you talk about your formal, uh, formulation and, uh, and parameterization, you do these uh, deterministic look-ahead unit commitment models with load biasing and reserves tuning as different formulations of the deterministic look-ahead models. So in my head, can I just bucket whatever somebody comes up with one of these things and they're talking to me about an imbalance reserve product i can just bucket ask the question does that end up getting resolved in the spot market or not and then i can put it in my head as either a load bias or yeah. reserve tuning is yeah. that fair i think that's fair i mean the maybe one nuance to add because uh, uh texans will get upset if i don't mention it is that no, but no texans listen to this okay, right. no that's okay uh well currently the ERCOT ordc is not co-optimized and okay so the the manner in which it's included in spot prices is not really clean. Okay. There, there is an adjustment, but, um, you know, everything in my paper, everything is co-optimized, the reserves and the, and the energy. So it, um, uh, is that, if I want to sound smart when I ask this question, is that the question of whether it's co-optimized in the spot prices that so, I want to ask somebody? 
uh, if anybody that listens to this podcast wants to sound smart when they're asking smarter people at these markets about uh, the different... Yeah, so well, the way to sound smart when commenting on ERCOT is, is yeah, well, yeah, but doesn't that get resolved once they implement real-time co-optimization? Okay. But is it the co-optimization, what, uh, like how it ends up in the spot price? These reserves end up in the spot price? That's the clearest way, yeah. That's yeah. the cleanest way. Okay. Um, we're going to, I think we're in, through part six of eight, we're an hour and 15 minutes in. I love this. It's perfect. Um, so um, par- actually, this is part seven. Um, it's actually the policy and parameterization are choices that matter is, is, is the, eight, the seventh part of the eight-part series. Um, and I'm going to quote a couple parts here in the paper. Um, I listened to David Roberts' Volt podcast, and w- one of the things uh, that I think he always nerds out about that I think is great, and I, one of the reasons I think you should go on volts and talk about market prices because it's so important because uh, I think I think this is a message that would resonate well with him and his audience. Uh, quote, the choice of operating policy can have a significant impact on the total revenue across all resources. In general, resource-specific revenues track the total charges. However, you go on storage is a notable exception with revenues deviating significantly uh, from that seen by the market as a whole. That's specifically around um, how these price choices matter for storage resources. And then you state in the abstract algorithmic choices in the design of policies for the sequential decision problem influence the prices ultimately formed. Um, it, it all of this is resolving to the formulation, the parameterization matter, um, and that is like you're demonstrating that through these numerical experiments. But it is also um, a choice that or a, uh, a statement that I think the more you get into like our capacity expansion model for our utility. Um, all those things, I think, reflect that how you model the issue ends up mattering, how you answer the questions, how the model answers the questions. What more do you want to say on like policy and parameterization and why it matters and why you think we need to pay more attention to it? Uh, well, I think that uh, just just since you, since you touched on it, the, I think one of the motivations is... And it ultimately comes back to that question of, are we getting what we want to out of markets? And are we uh, incentivizing the right resources uh, with, with our market design? And I, th- I think one of the things that I want to keep probing is, um, in particular, the incentives for storage and in- incentives for flexibility more generally where I think there's a real risk that um, the way we form prices essentially suppresses volatility and suppresses the incentive for market entry of flexible resources and in particular storage. Um, So I think there's a real risk there. And, um, uh, and, and, and if that's, the case, or the the extent to the extent that's the case, it, it means the markets are not driving the types of investments that we want. Um, so, hey, can I can I state that a, a kind of a, a different way and maybe hijack the conversation again? Is it also the case that if you're, for instance, a utility who has storage resources or is looking to invest in batteries because um, uh, you need it for load service does it also undervalue that investment like if yes. if a utility is um going to go contract and take 
pay basically the revenue requirement for the bond financing or debt financing of a resource. If you're paying that contract rate um, and and uh, the policy, the formulation and parameterization of these market products uh, don't value that, that you're going to end up over, like you're going to end up uh, overpaying for that. Like, I don't know what the right word is, um, but is that part of the? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, right. So your storage resource will get undervalued. Undervalued. In, in principle, it doesn't have to be storage. That's the, the, the one where my simulations showed the strongest effect, but yep. um but uh, but in principle, you could have you know research, take your pick on resources, and if you do a detailed enough simulation, maybe you'll pick mix, pick something up where the market is not valuing it the way it ought to be. Yep. Okay. Well, I have this is part eight. If we're ready for it, I'm ready. Okay. One of the policy recommendations is quote. You're advocating for high-fidelity simulation tools enabling system operators to compare operational performance and pricing outcomes with alternative algorithmic choices and reserve product specifications, putting them in position to credibly demonstrate the value of new resource products and parameterize them efficiently. Um, The question is, if you were going to name a lab or an institute, just like, you know, Jesse Jenkins has the zero lab. If you were going to name your institute to do this, what would you name it? If you were uh, going to be the founder of such uh, an institute or lab, um, what would it well, be? Uh, well, I guess I, I, yeah, I don't really have a name for my, my group, but the, uh, um, you know, one name I've used is, uh, so the, Kind of the, the the Bible in this area is spot pricing of electricity. Uh, the book okay. came out in 1988 uh, from the group out of MIT. Okay, and I, I think that you know what we're essentially after is spot pricing of low carbon electricity. So we're 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 trying to do something that's uh, really the same motivation as that 1988 book and the work that led up to it. Um, foundational principles for how you form spot prices and in electricity markets, um, but really rethinking the implications of the fact that we're we're doing so with a high amount of of uh, wind, solar, and batteries, none of which uh, appeared for obvious reasons in the uh, in the nineteen eighty eight book. So I think you've just named your book "Spot Pricing of Low Carbon Electricity." Is that is that your next work? You, the first time you came on, I asked if you had any books in the. <laughs> well, work. I've, I've used well. No, this is not. I, I'm not writing a book, but I, I have used that name in a in an application. So okay, so, yeah. that uh, doesn't Zero Lab has you know it's just a good name for a lab though. Uh-huh. Have you come up with? S spot price S P L C. That's not really a name for a lab. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's you got to come up with the name for a lab. I. I um, I would emphasize the West. You know, one of the takeaways from for this from my paper is, you know, one, I think one of the reasons the West is reticent for spot prices, like this formulation of central dispatch markets, is because of the formulation of these spot prices um, in a lot of centrally dispatch markets is um, it, it undervalues storage resources in some ways. Um, and unless we're using something like the Western Union balance market, which takes the offer curves from market participants that reflect opportunity costs, um, it just doesn't 
work well for a, a, a region like the Northwest. So I think part of my hypothesis is uh, the Northwest needs you to found a lab and investigate this further so that we can uh, think about this better and evaluate appropriately. Um, so uh, let me know when you're formulating a lab and you need to come no, up with I'm, catchy I'm name. working on it. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm, uh, there's definitely, you got a bunch of, of projects that, that are still pushing in this, uh, pushing in this direction and, um, uh, nor, uh, the WEC included. So WEC included. Yeah. Nice. But so at some point you'll include in your formulation of storage resources, the fact that some, uh, of the energy does come exogenously and not from the market. Oh, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's yeah. coming. Great. Anything else uh, you wanted to highlight or talk about before we close it out, before we get to an hour and a half on this recording, <laughs> which isn't so. the longest episode, episode we've had. <laughs> no, I think we can leave it there. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time and doing this in person. I do. It is a privilege for me to be here and I greatly appreciate it. It does not, it is not lost on me that you took the time to do this today. So thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for, thanks for coming all the way out here. Yeah. Thank you. And we did it from your office, which, uh, we, there may be an echo because there's nothing on the walls, not even a whiteboard. <laughs> To our listeners, while you aren't seen or heard, you are valued and appreciated. The episode is uh, after the season five finale and before the season six premiere in an odd liminal space. If you want Public Power Underground to continue, please thank our season five sponsors and rate and review the podcast on your app of choice. Most importantly, please share the episode so other energy enthusiasts like us can find us. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent topics from our power department's perspective. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Seattle City Light or Cornell University. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. We started in hard times to bring us all in. Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on We're likely recruiting you to come and join on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on We bring in some people way smarter than us Those in the industry with knowledge to trust We know we aren't perfect, sometimes it's a bust But we'll roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Your power's the subject of public power news Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on.